as we begin a few updates. Friend of the show and recurring guest Michael Judd recently launched a new book on Kickstarter, For the Love of Paw Paws, a mini-manual for growing, caring, and eating North America's largest native fruit, the pawpaw. To celebrate this project, we're partnering to give away a copy of his first book, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, to a podcast listener. Between now and March 24th, if you'd like to enter, email me, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, with the subject pawpaw. I'll then randomly select a winner, and you'll receive that book directly from Michael. Would you like to back his pawpaw manual? Search for Michael Judd on Kickstarter, or by following the link in the show notes. As we'll be moving into spring in the next few weeks, I'm running a fundraiser between now and April 20th, as the time has come to replace my minivan and keep the show on the road. If you love this podcast, whether you're new or have been tuning in for a long time, I'm asking you to consider donating a dollar per show that you've listened to. In support of this campaign, the artist Lindsay Wilson has donated a series of nature-inspired, one-of-a-kind mixed-media prints, which you can see at thepermaculturepodcast.com slash spring. So during the fundraiser, I'll be giving several of these away. One to the highest donor, one to a random donor, and one to a Patreon supporter. And for everyone who gives, you'll receive digital copies of the entire series. Give online by going to paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast. Send something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you'd like to see more of Lindsay's art, including illustrations and watercolors, You'll find all that and more at curvedcanvas.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guests today are Jill Lorenzini and Brad Lancaster of Desert Harvesters, here to discuss their new bioregional cookbook, Eat Mesquite and More. We use that as a frame to talk about how to learn more about our natural world, to invite ourselves into wild spaces, and to deepen our sense of place through connection to the land, plants, and the meals that bring us together. What they offer, though steeped in the Sonoran Desert, is something universal that you can replicate wherever you are to increase the understanding of seasonality, native plants and foraging, and also to grow the connections of your community through food. Enjoy this conversation with Jill and Brad, and I'll join you again afterward. Well, Brad and Jill, thank you so much for joining me today to have this conversation about the new cookbook from Desert Harvesters, Eat Mesquite and More, a cookbook for Sonoran Desert Foods and Living. Brad, since you've been on the show before, if folks would like to learn more about you, I'd recommend that they dig back into the archives and listen to the conversations that we've had in the past. And of course, they'll find links to those in the show notes. But Jill, since this is your first time on the Permaculture Podcast, could you give the audience a bit of your biography and background? and how you came to work with Desert Harvesters. Sure. Thanks, Scott, for having us. I moved to the desert from western New York to be in the sun and also to go to college at U of A and study anthropology and art. And um, I also became a teacher in various capacities. So I work with kids at an alternative school. And then I was a teacher teaching people natural building and ways to empower themselves in relationship to place. So Desert Harvesters was a natural fit. I love plants. I love place, trying to develop intimacy with where I live. And so Desert Harvesters was a great fit in terms of an organization that I could commit my time and energy to. 
in particular, this special project for Eat Mesquite and More. And I'm relatively new to the organization and all its accomplishments. You know, Desert Harvesters has been around for a while, so I'm really fortunate to be have been involved with this project because I love education and art, and it's full of that. And so was that kind of your role coming into this project to help organize the visual look and layout of the cookbook, or were you also involved in some of the run-up to the creation? Well, the volunteer who helped us secure a grant, Julie B., innocently asked me one day if I would want to be recipe coordinator, and that sort of morphed into a role that I didn't really anticipate having, but I was part of the editing team with Brad and our friend Kimmy Izell, and that was kind of like putting a recipe together itself, adding things, taking things away, moving them around. So that's how I got into the cookbook, kind of like a lot of things in Desert Harvesters. If you express a tiny bit of interest, it might become a a very large grant-funded project that occupies your, your interests and expression for almost three years. And we had that interview last year, Brad, talking about Desert Harvesters and the history of the organization and some of the mesquite pancake cook-offs and things where you would invite people in. And I don't know if it was just that I don't remember it or if it was a detail that I was missing that this cookbook started three years ago. Yeah, you're following that, right? Just in our last interview, we weren't ready to birth it to the world. (laughs) So uh, we were holding back on you a little bit. We mentioned we were working on it, but we didn't have enough details to share. But now we do. Can you give us a bit of the history of this project then? Because, Jill, you mentioned, you know, some grant funding to get this moving and then coordinating the recipes. I'm always fascinated by this kind of collaborative publishing work because of all the people who wind up coming on board to bring it together. And most of my experience with this kind of a collective cookbook are really through a lot of the community organizations or churches that will ask their members to submit some of their favorite recipes. And it just kind of becomes a collection of everyone who's in a place at a particular time. Yet, what you've done with Eat Mesquite and More is create really what I think is, at least to my knowledge, one of the first bioregional cookbooks that focuses really closely on the Sonoran Desert. And so I was wondering if you could talk some about this entire process from seeking the grant and getting things started to why you chose to go in this kind of a regional direction. Okay, so in 2011, Desert Harvesters came out with our first cookbook, Eat Mesquite. And that was meant to be a bait or an invitation to lure people into the abundance of this place, the Sonoran Desert bioregion, where there's over 400 native wild food plants. And it did really well. Um, It sold out. And when it went out of print, we could have reprinted. But when we looked at it and we looked at, well, what our original intent was, we realized we could expand on the invitation. We could expand on the bait. And so this new cookbook, Eat Mesquite and More, It contains many recipes about mesquite, but also over 15 other native wild food plants because we didn't want people just to get stuck on mesquite. We wanted them to go beyond. And it's been this amazing community process because we put out to the community, hey, submit recipes. And 
not just with mesquite, but with all these other wild food ingredients. And so many people who are already well-versed submitted recipes, but also people who had not practiced with one of these other wild food ingredients stepped up. And so wonderful new fusions were created, fusions of a culinary history or family recipe from someplace else fused with this bioregion by using ingredients unique and indigenous to this place. So for example, there's prickly pear borscht. So instead of using beets, which are from elsewhere and aren't the best adapted for this climate, prickly pear fruit, same color as the beet is used. And we get something altogether new that bridges the culinary history of that recipe with what is unique to this place. And I look through the list of recipes that are available, and it's just amazing that you have, you know, breakfasts, breads and crackers, savory dishes and sides, soup spreads and sauces, even some sweet recipes. And I mean, that's just looking at what's available for mesquite, but then you have the saguaro fruit, you know, desert ironwood, acorn, prickly pear, which we actually have here in Pennsylvania, which I was surprised to find, devil's claw, and just so many other plants that were available. And I'm wondering when you were looking at what different foods to include, not really the recipes, but when it comes to the ingredients, was this based on the submissions that you got from folks? Or was this that you were looking at what was readily available in the area? You know, the basis of of us creating the recipe, if you look at the way that it's laid out, it's by season. And so we wanted to make the new ingredients available in that kind of way that if people were saying, what could I cook in the summer when it's so hot or what's available in that season, they could open the book and look at wet summer or dry summer. We have more seasons distinctly here than in other places. And we felt that was the most accessible way people could use the cookbook. And then they could look at not only ingredients available, but but have a relationship with season in that way, which again is we're looking to provide opportunities to allow people to connect with place and deepen that connection with place. And so adding all these ingredients is another way to make people aware of the seasons and then what's available in the seasons. And the other way that it's organized is into three sections about you know, sort of plants, place, and people. So that was one of the other focuses that sort of the way the book was organized. And I think that's something that Desert Harvesters strives to to reach is people in those kind of contexts, plants, place, and people. And the sort of broader picture of the two rainy seasons here and, and how plants evolved with that here I think it's very rich. It's not just a cookbook. It's an invitation to become connected and, and harmonize with the seasons and this, this very, very unique place. It's kind of like both a farmer's almanac and an eater's almanac. <laughs> because you can open up to any month of the year and see what the potential is. Because this, it's not just about eating. This is also about planting these food plants, where you live, work, and play. So this isn't about an extractive agricultural system. This is about trying to push a renaissance of a regenerative agricultural system where we are planting 
these food plants where we live, work, and play, and doing so in such a way that we enhance the health of the land, the fertility, the hydrology, and the health of us all at the same time. So instead of using, you know, planting a plant from somewhere else and using water to irrigate it, and that water being imported from someplace else, along with synthetic fertilizer from someplace else, we're instead planting the plants that are unique to this place, watered just with free on-site rainwater and runoff of this place, and fertilized just with its own leaf drop and maybe the manure of the wild birds that frequent it. And that helps to answer one of the questions that I had was where were people sourcing these ingredients from, whether it was a foraged process, a managed process, or actually, you know, a garden that this was being pulled from? It's all of the above. So we are trying to get people to, you know, plant it and have more of it in their lives. But we're also, through all our workshops and uh, in the, with the information in the cookbook and whatnot, we're providing information so people, and hands-on information, so people can go out and forage from the desert if they like, or from urban trees that they have planted or that others have planted. And that, you know, that's the main piece. We're trying to push that side. But simultaneously, there are many entities such as the San Javier Farm Cooperative, which was the first producer of mesquite flour in the U.S., at least locally, but I believe in the U.S. as well. They have the choya bud, the flower buds of the choya cactus, and others. So we're trying to also support existing commercial producers of these wild foods to support them grow the market. So they, they too are supported and expand what they are doing. And we're also training new potential producers, planters, that are providing new ingredients. One instance of that is a, a local restaurant called La Cocina, and we've worked with the owner and chefs there to incorporate native foods, and the missing piece is providers of those native foods. So I'm going to be working on a project with them where they look at what's in the local neighborhood. It's actually an historic neighborhood around where they are, and could they potentially involve neighbors and other um, businesses that have these native plants to harvest those products and, and have a hyper-local, hyper-seasonal food supply, empowering neighbors to recognize the value in the native plants that are there. And also, like Brad is saying, to emphasize this potential of replanting the urban wilds because we've, we live in a culture of removal where these plants weren't valued or, or recognized as having value and they were removed and replaced with foreign things. Um, that don't really thrive here. So I think also planting foods is a really empowering um, activity. And then you have an ongoing relationship with plants that you have planted. I think there's enormous empowerment possibilities there where people could start to be more related to the place that they live because they've planted plants and start using them as food and they become part of place. That's how I think of it. Eating seasonal foods, they're part of me. And I think people have a, a much bigger stake in place when that's the relationship that they're cultivating. And what it sounds like you're doing using the cookbook as ongoing bait for people because of all the articles that you have in here that kind of expand the information beyond just collecting some things and then cooking them. And this long-term kind of view of using regenerative ag that you have 
an integration, not only of the individual into the landscape and the seasonality, but also then within your local economy with the people who can then be food growers and producers and then bring that back into your restaurants and to other people who can use these materials and supply them to others. That creates something that is more holistic than just someone who's going out to forge something to sell for market or to use some recipes to promote their products at a farmer's market that you're bringing a lot more to the table through this process. Absolutely. And we're pushing the restaurants and whatnot we work with to you know, plant these wild food plants at the restaurant too. So as you walk through the doors, you're going under the canopy of some of these native bean trees. The parking lot is a an orchard of these food-bearing trees, and the runoff from the parking spaces directed to those trees becomes the free water source. So it's, it's a regenerative parking orchard. So it's not just on the menu, it's, it's as soon as you arrive, you arrive to a, a greater connection. Have you been getting a lot of buy-in from the restaurants and the people who got involved in the cookbook to share this information and to make these ideas more accessible and available to people in the area? I think so, yes. People in the cookbook, a project was described called Baja Brews, and it was in collaboration with the local Edible Baja Arizona magazine. Two desert harvesters consulted with Edible and local brewers about the availability of desert ingredients with which they might flavor local beers. And so there was a program for a year where people could buy tickets and come and sample beers and other libations made with desert ingredients. So that was very popular. And there's another restaurant that we've collaborated with called EXO, and they've worked different desert ingredients into both their beverage and food list. And I think just the visibility of that inspires other businesses in town to perhaps include desert ingredients to become more unique. And I think the the ingredients are not only beautiful, they're also nutritious. So people aren't just interested in them, are interested in them for a variety of reasons, taste, nutrition, connection to place, and an honoring of the indigenous cultures who really had this relationship so many thousands of years and that's what you know we're trying to honor offering these kinds of recipes as well a connection to the past a connection to place a connection to more nutrient rich life and amazing thing is tucson was selected as the first city to be recognized in the united states as a unesco world city of gastronomy And that's uh, due to many efforts of many organizations and individuals. It's due to its over 4,000-year continuous history of farming. That's the oldest continuous history of farming that we're aware of in the continental United States. It's because of the border region where these food traditions, I mean, they ignore borders. So it's throughout the Sonoran Desert on both the U.S. and the Mexican side. So it, it builds on all of that. And when you mention the indigenous people of the Sonoran Desert, were you able to work with some of those communities in developing the cookbook? So Clifford Pablo, he is a mentor of mine and of ours, and he's the one that first exposed me to 
the amazing flavor of mesquite flour and how important it is to taste before you pick because every tree tastes different. So, you know, I originally would just go to any mesquite and just start picking, but then uh, he showed me, no, you can have these incredible diversity of flavors from tamarind, you know, the sweet and sour flavor to more like an apple or cinnamon flavor or nutty, more carob-like, or it can go to the other side and you can get heinous, chalky, bitter, you know, burning, slight burning of the throat. So he then also told me about how he had set up these groves of mesquite that they were planting out at the San Javier farm with the intent of then thinning them out as they got to bearing age. So the ones that didn't taste so good, they would cut them out and they'd leave the better tasting ones. And then they could also select for those with denser pod clusters for more efficient harvest and those that ripened at the right time, you know, ideally before the summer rains. So absolutely, I mean, we, we've learned a, a huge amount from him and others. And now the great thing is it's been this like crazy circle and that Clifford, you know, taught us all that and he had the mesquite program going at the farm, but they didn't have their own mill. And when Desert Harvesters got its mill, then Clifford was hiring us at one point to come in and mill the farm's mesquite pods. Then they got their own mill. And then Clifford got a mill for the, the Tahoe Autumn Community College, where he teaches young farmers and is also part of the agricultural extension program on the reservation. Now, his interns and whatnot are helping co-teach and facilitate our training programs. So it's, it's this wonderful synergy where we're all working together and promoting each other's work and learning from one another and, and all of that. Yes, and the Lush Grant also funded a lot of that education and training and our milling event that allowed that collaboration. So the next generation in the program that, that Brad described. It's an agricultural program for students. They also want to create a culinary program, I understand, and so that bringing back more of the native foods that were replaced by less nutritious and less historical foods, indigenous foods, native foods, which caused a health crisis in that culture. So now bringing that back, and it was great to have Clifford and the next generation of, of volunteers present at the millings, like Brad said, coming full circle. But of course, we'd love to have way more involvement and collaboration in the future, because I think that's really important to honor that tradition as Desert Harvesters evolves, as, as we enhance our relationship to place. And I should just do a shout out to Lush Cosmetics, who funded the majority of the cookbook effort and a lot of the trainings that went along with that and informed uh, the development of the cookbook and some of our other programming and enabled it. And also the uh, Tucson Community Food Bank and their Punch Woods grant. So it was both national funder and local funder, along with many people who stepped up in our Indiegogo uh, fundraising campaign, individual and business supporters, sponsors that enabled this to happen because it, it was a massive effort, but uh, it turned out awesome. And from conversations I've had with some other folks in the permaculture community, Terragenesis International in particular comes to mind. Lush Cosmetics has been a big supporter of a lot of the things that permaculture practitioners 
and other folks who are interested in sustainability and regenerative practices, you know, they've just really supported a lot of that work and helped some folks take some things from idea and bring it out into the world. Yeah, it's great what they're enabling and and we're we're grateful for what they enabled with us. The more of it you talk about this project and everybody who comes into it, I really just like the integrated aspects of this because it it starts as a cookbook but it's so much more because of all the people who come together to create ultimately the final product but then also through the education and outreach by steeping oneself in the local environment by becoming bioregional. As you say, Brad, about, you know, the Sonoran Desert, both in the United States and in Mexico, even though we have these nation state lines, that our bioregions aren't restricted by those boundaries. And so neither are, in many cases, our cultures and the way that these food traditions and things travel through regions and the way that it can help make the world a little bit smaller if we can sit down at a table with someone and share a meal with them that we both enjoy that comes from that place that we call home. Absolutely. And I want to riff off of that in that while we're trying to really celebrate and spotlight what is unique to this place, so people see what is all too often invisible and tap into it and collaborate with the potential of this place, this effort is not limited to this place. So the another intention of this cookbook is that it would be a template for every bioregion and to bridge to others. So just as you mentioned, you have the prickly pear cactus growing in your area. So we have many wild plant foods in the cookbook that grow in the majority of the deserts of the Americas, North and South, and some in Central America as well, or at least close related plant relatives. So one of our hopes is that people maybe use the basic template of the cookbook to really spotlight and celebrate what is unique to their area as well. And I would just add to that too, Scott, that I think that every place has its own sort of unique and inherent wisdom. And so like Brad says, the cookbook is a template. Anyone could go out and and do the same look at all the ingredients that could be potentially used. Um, I think it also, talking about borders, there's no, I think universally people have less and less connection to place. And so this is an opportunity all over. I think a lot of people are disconnected from nature in general. And in particular in the desert, people look at the desert and, and kind of see it as a hostile sort of place, really spiky and venomous creatures and everything. Um, If you just take one step in, though, and that's what Desert Harvesters tries to encourage and invite, then you can begin to tap into just the treasures there and the wisdom for all kinds of living and not just eating. But I do think people have always come together around food. And so this is just a, a testament to that. And it could be reproduced anywhere, and we, we do encourage that because I think the process of doing it is just as important as the end product. And I think another great thing is how we can have the sharing that I think just lists the potential um, on, on both sides. So I Okay, so here we have a rich history of the harvest and utilization of the choya bud, the flower bud of the choya cactus here in the the low deserts of southern Arizona. 
And yet, when I go to northern New Mexico, higher elevation, there is a history, but it doesn't seem to be as present currently as we find down here in the low desert. And yet, their choya buds are four times the size of ours. I mean, it's just my eyes pop out of my head when I see them. I'm like, do you, do you guys realize the abundance of your, your choya buds? This is incredible. And then I've cooked them up there. They're just as good as the ones we have. And similarly, I had the uh, opportunity to do some teaching last year in Zimbabwe. And there... They, too, had the choya cactus. Now, it's not indigenous to there. Um, the cactus is just indigenous to the, to the New World. But it had been brought in, and people were using it as a living fence. And yet the people that I was working with, there was a lot of hunger issues. And they have these living fences just overflowing with food, but no one saw the food because it wasn't part of their their culture. So we cooked up some choya buds and said and showed them how to process a dethorn to DC what's possible. And it's just boom, boom. So mind and uh, explodes and and world gets bigger. The potential gets bigger there. So um, there's great potential there. And here, like for me, my family's not from here. I moved here when I was three. So we don't have any oral history or tradition. And I grew up in the desert and would walk around surrounded by this abundance, but was blind to it because I, no one had told me. And I, there were a few things like I did chew on the mesquite pods. I ate hackberries, but overall I didn't know how to tap in. And I so was craving and wish I had had this cookbook at that time because I think far fewer people will blade these multi-hundred-year-old intact wild food forests if they could see that they are food forests. And what you speak to, Brad, is really interesting to me because my family has lived in Appalachia for several hundred years. And so there are certain traditions within that immigrant population from Europe about the foods that we would harvest because I come from, you know, hill people who were poor. And so there was a lot of foraging and hunting traditions between going for the raccoon or the possum and how to cook those things that are not normally considered like food animals that someone might hunt, but then also harvesting mushrooms and things like that. And I think from there then to some of the books that many people are familiar with when it comes to foraging, such as Tending the Wild, and the way that that changes our perspective with the world around us when we realize that human beings have been managing the landscape around us long before what we would think of as agriculture, which kind of starts with the plow and the domestication of crops, that we were managing woodlands with burning. I'm sure that in, you know, the American Southwest, that those landscapes in the desert, that there was the replanting of certain things so that people could come back to them later. And it's just taking off that blinder of the prepackaged food that comes from the grocery store, that when we look around us, there's truly an abundance anywhere that we look. Absolutely. And uh, I just want to point out one thing is, uh, like the raccoon and whatnot, we've got some great recipes on how to utilize pack rats. That's the sweet meat of the desert in our, in our cookbook. And also insects like uh, grasshoppers. I think one of the things we're trying to advocate here is tending the neighborhood wild. And Tim Flannery, an Australian scientist, has a great book called The Future Eaters, where he documents all over the world 
anytime humans, when they first would come into an ecosystem, there'd be mass extinction because we didn't know how to live in balance with place. We, we, yeah, we didn't understand. But eventually, we started to figure it out. We, we really set roots, and we realized we have to be more in balance, and a, a more reciprocal relationship would be developed until a new bunch of humans that didn't know that culture that had evolved that place came about, and there'd be another bit of extinction going on. So we're kind of hoping with this cookbook to uh, minimize such extinctions because a third of Tucson's population turns over every three years. That's how transient our community is. So people are coming in from elsewhere, and I think that's pretty common across the U.S. So we're hoping that at least aspects of this will be a, a guidebook or a manual to um, how to be in better relationship with place and how to do so. When it comes to helping people to kind of root into place, do you think that not only could it come from the foods themselves, but also with the way that the cookbook is written, with that focus on seasons, to get people to think more about like the wet summer and the spring and fall? And that comes to mind for me because many of the articles that I wind up running across with like the transient populations that you mentioned for people who come and go, is that for a lot of folks, it's they arrive in the American Southwest. They walk from their air-conditioned car, they sweat for a few seconds as they go into their house, their air conditioning is on again, and so even though they're living in this place with this vibrant seasonality, they're using technology to kind of control their interaction with it, where something like this to go out and find these foods to forage and reconnect with nature in the area might also help them reconnect with the seasonality of that space. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's why it's broken down by season. So at any point, wherever, whatever day of the year it is, you can open the book to that day, that season, and tap in. The other thing, too, is within the cookbook, Jill mentioned that she was a recipe coordinator. One of my favorite parts of the book is you know, she's got recipes in there on not just how to cook a food, but how to be in place. Okay, And we have guides and with every food ingredient on how to uh, to plant that food plant. So what's the best time to plant? Do you need to scarify the seed to germinate it or not? Or does it not need scarification? So it's not just a guide of when you can harvest, but it's also a guide when you can when you can plant. I think too, Scott, you're, it's right. You know, we're inviting people to be more aware and conscious of the seasons. And I think also of, of celebrating that. So this book is kind of a celebration of seasons and and how people can become more involved and, and just get back to basics and simplicity, uh, defining life by the seasons and the foods available, but to celebrate that, to celebrate the unique abundance that we have here and the opportunities to enhance our health is one of the ways I look at it with all these foods, our connections with other people, because, you know, the best way to enjoy food is to share it. And then to the opportunity to innovate. So every time you sit down at a meal with someone and taste desert ingredients, you might get inspired. Oh, this reminds me of a recipe that I had before. I think I can plug in this ingredient. But just to get out in the seasons and to realize how amazing the plants are here, 
how a plant can get rain and then four days later it's changed. It's put out leaves, it's put out flowers, it's creating a harvest and out of season. The plants here are just amazing. The place is amazing. And I think you're right. People insulate themselves against the extremes here and they're they're missing out in those sort of fake environments where you're cool when it's hot and you're warm when it's cold. I think it would be helpful for people to get out and just feel things. That's my point is to also get out and feel what a place does for you. This will will bring back healing and and just an abundance within self that I think is part of what the cookbook is, is promoting too in a more subtle way is to be connected and that that increases your quality of life. And to that whole idea of how people insulate themselves by being in the air-conditioned capsule or whatnot, well, we're advocating for and showing them how they can grow living air conditioners. And instead of that living air conditioner, that tree being dependent on a plastic pipe delivering water from who knows where, as the water, when it rains, just flows down the street, we're instead, hey, let's pull that water off the street to irrigate that street tree for free. So very low technology. We're using gravity, not pumps, to make it all work. And then when we engage with those trees, like let's look at a native mesquite tree, we find the native mesquite tree supports over 60 different native pollinators, whereas uh, here in, in the Sonoran Desert, a South American hybrid mesquite brought in from uh, elsewhere only supports 12 native pollinators. And so since there's so much more abundant beneficial insect life in a native mesquite tree, it turns out we found from research of others that neotropical songbirds such as the Wilson warbler, when they're flying from Central America to Canada and back, they have to refuel and we're along their migratory route. And they'll drop into a single native mesquite tree and they can increase their body weight by 10 to 20 percent in just two to four days just eating the insects in that one tree. So a single tree in a single yard or neighborhood can become this key oasis for this migrating life. And thus, we aren't just the Sonoran Desert. We are connected across North and Central America and this migratory route of this bird that we're supporting. And that bird and, and others can in turn clue us into the best tasting mesquite trees. Because many birds will strip the mesquite pods of the trees that have the sweetest, tastiest pods. So you can just do a quick visual scan of like, okay, those pods are smooth, nothing's touching it, but those ones are a little shreddy. I'm zeroing in on that tree because the birds are telling me this is the honey tree. And that gets us out there observing nature, finding those plants that are already adapted to a palate that is likely to be something that we would enjoy. Yeah. With our conversation about the cookbook and everything that's in it and what folks can learn from it and, you know, different ways that you've suggested that some folks might get involved with a similar project, if somebody's interested, where can they get a copy of the cookbook? So glad you asked. Well, they can get it on the website by ordering, and that's www.desertharvesters.org. There's all kinds of instructions on how you can place an order. People who are interested in wholesale orders have information there as well. 
So that's one way to get it. We have it locally available, but it can be shipped anywhere. And Desert Harvesters is the sole distributor of the cookbook until April 1st of 2018. And from that date on, you will still be able to get the cookbook from Desert Harvesters. But at that time, we engage with our contract with Chelsea Green Publishing, who will be our national distributor through the book trades. So um, that will be uh, another option at that point. And if there's anybody in the region who wants to get involved with Desert Harvesters, what would you recommend they do to get in touch? Should they just send a message through the website or would you recommend they look for a class or workshop so they can come out and meet some folks? Well, both. So they should always check out the events page on the desertharvesters.org website. That's the best because you're going to be face-to-face with us. You're going to see what's going on. But uh, you can also contact us through the the website um, if you want to volunteer at any of our events as well. For general information, I'd recommend people first read the book or read through the website before emailing us because we find with probably 90% or more of the folks that contact us, with a question, the information's already been laid out in the book or, or the website. And then when they come to our events and whatnot, then we can really drill down face-to-face and give them more, more information that's uh, particularly well-adapted to, to what they're seeking. As I always like to do at the close of an interview, I was wondering if either of you have any final thoughts on your work with Desert Harvesters, on the creation of the cookbook, or anything else that you'd like to share with me and the listeners. I'm so grateful that I've been able to see some of the abundance that's around me in this place. And I've been grateful for the ability to share some of what I've learned through Desert Harvesters and this new cookbook. But every place has so much abundance. What we need is here, but we typically lack the ability to see it. And... I think if we at least open ourselves to that potential and to look, we're much more likely to see it. And if we can get ourselves in circles, in communities of people that have some of that knowledge or are going in that direction, I think we can really help one another. I think that's another goal of of this cookbook. Yeah, and Scott, something I thought of, as I said, I'm, I do a lot of teaching with desert harvesters in other, other areas, but we've collaborated with the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona for a number of years to, they actually have hired us to do presentations on a monthly basis of, of what the native desert food would be available um, in, say, you know, May. or So bringing that kind of food palette, broadening the food palette so people are coming to the farmer's market that the food bank runs and people are interested in buying local foods and then we are presenting what's called a desert harvest series and exposing people to the available plants and the food bank thinks that's a really important part of their food security programming. So they hire desert harvesters to present about the nutrition, the history, and the seasonal availability of desert foods. And it's a it's a very popular program. And it, it's very deeply tied also to water security issues. So I think both food and secu- water security 
are issues that both desert harvesters and the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona are addressing. And people come up to the demos and often say, oh, my mother used to harvest that and this is what she did with it. And, you know, I'd like to learn again. So I believe that at least one generation of, of people have become less aware of the native foods around them. And now we have this very great opportunity to reconnect them with past experiences, recipes from grandmothers and, and other relatives to be revived. And so the cookbook is that too, enhancing food and water security and, and enhancing uh, the relationship people have with, with foods that were forgotten. And so many of these wild native foods, be those of the Sonoran Desert or wherever the listeners are located, they tend to have this characteristic whereby they slow the body's intake of sugars, unlike processed foods that kind of jack that up. And so these wild native foods tend to be much more nutritious and medicinal in that they're regulating our blood sugar. So it's great for people with hypoglycemia and or diabetes. And that was Joe Lorenzini and Brad Lancaster. Find out more about their work with Desert Harvesters at desertharvesters.org. If you'd like to find out more about their individual projects, Brad is at harvestingrainwater.com and Jill is at lorenziniworks.com. Of course, you'll find links to all of those and more in the show notes. What I like about this interview is the way that Jill and Brad dig into the idea that supporting local habitat matters. If we care for the spaces around us, including those native edible plants in the local watershed, we can protect it. By tending those spaces, especially our neighborhood, we bring those plants that we want to grow and eat into our yards and gardens. Then, though we may still forage among the plants when ripe and ready, we no longer have to go into the often fragile ecosystems where, in the words of Bob Tice, the land doesn't need us to inflict ourselves upon it. There's good earth and growing space around most of us, whether that's a few pots on a windowsill, a planter box in a window, a rooftop garden, or something more large and sprawling in a front or backyard. I also like these ideas of bringing things in because of some of the encouragement from my permaculture teachers to consider the non-use and expansion of Zone 5, the wilderness, wherever it exists, and that we can do so by bringing the other zones inward, Tending a space, especially an urban one, can become a source to protect rare and interesting plants, a refuge for this life and our own. If you're interested in creating a habitat for native plants and learning more about their importance, once you have your copy of Eat Mesquite and More, I recommend picking up Dr. Doug Tallamy's Bringing Nature Home. Using his years of experience as an entomologist and a variety of research, he shows how the plants that co-evolved with the insects, animals, and other life in an area can support ever greater diversity in our backyard and bioregion. I also want to suggest another book worth reading, relating to what Brad shared about his experience teaching in Zimbabwe and the recognition that there are food forests all around us. That book is Save Three Lives by the late Robert Rodale. This was a transformational book for me as a permaculture practitioner, is it helped me to understand the ways that we can use our skills and knowledge to create an understanding of the abundance of nature in ourselves and in our students, whoever and wherever they may be. Mr. Rodale also outlines how we can create systems that insulate ourselves, our families, 
and our communities from disasters. If you have any questions or thoughts after listening to this conversation with Jill Lorenzini and Brad Lancaster of Desert Harvesters, leave a comment or get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interview is from guest host David Bilbrey, when he sits down with Julie Mettenberg of the Tall Grass Network to talk about holistic management. Until then, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by foraging, eating native foods, and taking care of Earth, yourself, and your community.